0: I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things. And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me?
1: It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell, a double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air.
0: Happy weekend, everybody. Happy Veterans Day to you, wherever you may be, and however that applies to you and yours. I'm Gary Nance, Suzanne Mitchell. And we are joined by Nathan Miller at the board, our producer. Nathan, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing well, and happy Veterans Day weekend to you as well. Just finished up a nice little week of my brother and his wife visiting in town with their daughter. So I got to see my niece as well. Oh, that's great.
2: How old is the little niece?
1: She is going to be two in just a few more months here. So time she's walking flies. around She is walking yes. around <laughs> Saying a few words Took her to the zoo She got a little bit Started by uh, Startled by a sea lion Swimming up to the glass And uh, Almost Quote unquote Hitting her Because <laughs> you know Just went right up to where We were holding her In front of the glass And first time yeah. It was kind of cute She did like a little whoo Like that But didn't really make any noise It was just like a Almost like the look of a kid About to fall But then they catched themselves and then right. uh, the second time it came up and she screamed. So I was like, okay, no more next exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty to scream at. Let's yes. keep going. <laughs> well, I'm glad
2: they came your way because I know you've been out to see them a few times. So
1: Yeah, it's nice to have them out here for a change. It's not often we get yes. family up here because all of our family pretty much lives in the Midwest. So most yeah. of the time it's us going over there.
2: Right. 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 So I did want goes. to
1: say that uh, Veterans Day is
0: meaningful to so many as well. It should be. My father, Matthew Mance, served on the USS Manatee in World War II. I honor him for his service. I honor all who have served. They sacrificed so much. And how many countless veterans, uh, countless veterans today. Remember those veterans who didn't make it home, And uh, that's why we have Memorial Day as well. But this is, uh, it's a solemn time, but also a time of pride and joy in our country, what we stand for, and especially in honor of those who stood for all of us in peacetime and especially in wartime.
2: Well said, Gary, well said.
0: And today we're going to talk to someone, and this is an interesting take on Veterans Day. How about a world that, finds a better way to live so that we don't have so much armed conflict around the globe.
2: Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? We, we got a book in the mail uh, a short time ago, and you and I looked at it, and we giggled at the title, the two of us, opened up the envelope, and this book says, why can't we be more like trees? And, and I read that out loud, and, and you looked at me and went, huh? And the two of us kind of laughed. And the next thing I knew, I picked it up and I found an absolutely wonderful book. And today we are going to talk to the author of Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? Why don't you do her mad props today, Gary?
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. Judith Pollich is a former lawyer, environmentalist and wetlands advocate. She holds a Master of Science degree in environmental studies and environmental education from the University of Wisconsin. The author of a climate change column for the albuquerque journal and the book return of the children of light she lives in santa fe new mexico A story unto itself wisconsin gal makes good in santa fe (laughs) (laughs) judith colich we are so delighted to have you with us today welcome welcome
3: well thank you for having me on your program and yes it is intended as an evocative title
2: (laughs) well you succeeded you succeeded in making us giggle and then you succeeded in having me pick up this book and start reading it. And I was fascinated right from the get go. Um, I think it you, you're the lawyer in you really laid this out beautifully. I mean, I could see where you had your combination of your heart and your mind working together. Your mind laid it out so logically and it flows so intelligently. And your heart is all over every chapter of this book, right from the beginning. And um, I, I just wanted to jump into it, if that's okay with you. Absolutely, you let's go. Mm-hmm. Chapter one: Trees, how they communicate, share resources, care for offspring, offspring, elderly, and the affirm. I'm I'm saying there's like a whole big world going on that I was really not aware of in the same way that you laid it out what is the whole tree community about trees and plants
3: well you know this book is a scientifically based book so when i started reading some of these articles about uh, the new research they were doing under the ground in the soil um, below this you know in the different levels of soil about what happens in a forest uh And what the interactions are between trees and between trees and fungi, with which they have a very uh, interesting relationship with. Uh, I was just fascinated. And, you know, because we think of soil, we look at what we can see, and we can't see very much except maybe a a little worm or something like that. But um, with the new technologies that they are utilizing underground, Uh, This started with research by Susan Simond, um, who is a forest ecologist. Uh, They were able to determine and track uh, the interactions, both in terms of sharing food um, between trees, between tree roots, between what they call the mother trees, the more established trees and the younger offspring, Also between trees of different species who were in in need of food, Um, they also were able to look at the interactions with the fungal community, these little fibers that come from the fungus that interact with the roots of the trees, exchanging information, providing medications at times, water, minerals in particular, that the trees couldn't reach otherwise. And so it became very clear that there is a whole, there's not just interaction, there's an incredibly complex community of life that we, that just wasn't visible to us. And as more studies were done, um, it became evident that there was also a lot of communication and something that seemed like intelligence, though not like our intelligence. So it's very fascinating. And uh, it kind of drew me in to looking at some new ways of looking at things and looking at how the plant community reflects core values that we need to emulate, like kindness and cooperation and sharing well,
2: yes, and 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 this starts with trees, but we're going to we're going to make this a h- big concentric circles here as we include humans in all of this. Interestingly enough, you said that that trees f- know their own offspring. So, if you're some big oak tree out there mm-hmm. and there's some little acorns growing in the soil, You're going to make sure that those acorns are getting plenty of nutrients. And I thought that now that is fascinating that tree roots would recognize their own kind.
3: It is fascinating. But, you know, the science is the science. We just didn't know such things happened. And um, they also recognize those of their that are not their kind, and at times they share resources with other trees, because it's the health of the community of the forest that is more important than the individual. Fascinating.
2: Yes, and one of the fascinating uh, stories right right off was the story about, I think it was two different types of trees growing in the same forest, and, and so the humans decided that one tree was more important than the other tree, and mm-hmm. so they were going to cut down the less important tree. And what happened
3: there? What happened there is that the it, the forest did not thrive. Uh, it was contrary to their expectations. They thought, oh, this will just make more sunlight, more food available for the ones we want to ultimately harvest. It didn't work that way. Uh, the whole community suffered because the interaction yeah. was critically important and not a part of their more linear thinking.
2: Right, right. I mean, you know, we might think, well, there's competition. There's competition for food. There's competition for sunlight. There's competition for rain. That's not how it was perceived by trees.
3: Well, it isn't that trees don't have competition. They do. But they also value what they can gain from community.
2: Very good.
0: It seems to me there's a, a, a... a dichotomy of existence. When one species can look at any number of other species and say, I am me, we are us, those things need to be exploited. There's a difference between a being and a thing. Things are a lot easier to manipulate or ignore or abuse or exploit. But when you're talking about being, you're talking about Something essential to the process of life at the core. Dare I say, it involves some aspect of the holy to be recognized as a being.
3: You know, and that's that's kind of why we're in the situation we're in, because we've stopped seeing things from the being perspective uh, and see it from the object, the commodity perspective. So we have lost our connection to the larger whole and we have a huge environmental crisis when when
2: you look at how trees communicate and and how they will feed their own saplings and interact with with others underground does it say to you that the plant world has a consciousness
3: Again, we have to be very careful with words like consciousness, cognition, and intelligence, because as humans, we're interpreting those words from our perspective and how those concepts work for us. So I would say they have something like a consciousness, something like cognition, something like intelligence. I use the word smarts um, (laughs) because it distinguishes their reality from ours in a way because they really are something totally other than we are Um, and we are totally anthropocentric in how we view things right um so that is a problem
2: well you know where we're heading to before the end of the hour is the interconnection of all of this but one of the things that i got early on in the book that i found so incredibly fascinating was it seemed like as you know robert frost said there was a road that diverged in the wood and yeah. and so if you went one way mm-hmm. which would be toward the uh, animals and humans you had to develop a way to take in your nutrients and to get rid of your wastes Mm -hmm. And that's the whole gastrointestinal system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you took the other path, you've got something completely different in the plant world.
3: Well, plants photosynthesize. They make their own food out of sunlight. Uh, Unfortunately, we never developed that ability. So we had to rely on plants for food and all animals had to do the same. They had to rely on plants for food and other animals for food. So that means we developed predatory behaviors early, early on in evolution. And that was indeed a divergent path. Um, And But, again, it's a path in which in evolution there was no choice.
2: And I'll tell you why I found that interesting, uh, Judith, is that, you know, plants are, they're rooted in the ground they're right. not they're not running anywhere they're not they can't not going <laughs> anywhere and and so once again you know we kind of look at plants as being so far inferior to humans because you can't a tree can't pick up and run somewhere unless it's in a cartoon you know right. then they then they mm-hmm. pick up and run somewhere but at the same time we can't photosynthesize Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and when I look at the animal world, there are many senses that animals have that we do not have. Mm-hmm. They can they can mm-hmm. smell things at great distances. Like mm-hmm. I always bring up the sharks; they can smell mm-hmm. one drop of blood from five miles away. And so they have they have sight, they have smell, they have hearing, they have things that are so far superior to humans. And yet we we developed in this way where we think that we're so much better than plants and animals. And I'm going, you know, look at what plants can do that we can't do.
3: Right. I mean, a lot of people don't understand the senses and the range of senses that plants have. Uh, and um, they have... Because and part of it they've d- developed this way because they are rooted. They can't move around and go out and look for food. So they have a wide array of senses that uh and different sensitivities to light, uh, and um that we don't have. They also have most of the senses we have, but very but they're it's not like they have ears. They have hearing which is dispersed throughout their entire the entire plant, the leaves, the the roots, all parts of the plant, uh, and things like that. Uh, this, and theoretically, they have what is considered by some a, di- a dispersed intelligence uh, that is spread throughout the plant body, particularly in the roots and in the little um, meristems of the roots. Uh, so it's, diff- it's similar but different.
0: I like that. It's Spoken like a, a true lawyer. We're similar, <laughs> but different. <A> nuanced perspective. <laughs> Suzanne and I were curious to know what, what is implied, certainly by the term, but uh, just before the show, we got into this, Suzanne, we wanted to ask Judith, tell us about the prospect, ghastly as it is to consider, of a sixth extinction.
3: Well, we've had five, <laughs> and the way we're creating species loss and climate crises around the planet, there's certainly a strong possibility of a sixth extinction, whether it's a full extinction or a great loss of diversity. That isn't clear yet, but obviously climate change is not a new issue to any of us, um, and In past extinctions, we lost significant amounts of life on the planet, um, up to 99% in some of those extinctions. Life did resume. The Earth will not die. The Earth will reform. We just might not be a part of it. That is
2: fascinating. When you're looking at extinctions, you're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of years what what kind of time frame are we looking it's, at it's
3: a large okay extinction on the trajectory we're on now uh and um we are making some progress in climate change though it's slow and not enough to avoid a lot of pain and trauma for many humans and many other species um Extinctions can happen quickly as environments change. In other words, it's already happening in the rainforest and in, lo- and in a lot of vulnerable areas. So I'm not talking about total extinction. I think we'd really have to get up there in terms of really large warming numbers. And hopefully we're going to mitigate that. Um, but we're going to have species loss. We're going to have diversity loss, no matter in the best circumstances. So, um and it takes a long time for the planet to regroup <laughs> to bring back life but you know the other thing about extinction that is so interesting uh is that in order for a whole bunch of new species to evolve which included us extinction was necessary so that there was a place for for mammals to evolve um mammals that we eventually eventually uh became <laughs> up the scale and into humans. So there has to so in in that sense in the large, large picture, extinction is part of what happens. Making room so, for other species. That's very
2: interesting. Now the when approximately would would you say was the last extinction?
3: Well, when the dinosaurs was that? uh, Yeah, okay. Quite a long time ago. So, I don't know. Was I don't? I'm not. I can't tell you the exact time period when that happened. But when that asteroid hit Mm. and um, the impact of that, and all the gases and the dust that went up into the atmosphere, that caused a mass extinction of a huge number of of uh, land animals and animals that lived in the sea. Uh, It was a massive extinction. And um, gradually, over time, uh, evolution occurred. Um, A few small mammals who lived mostly underground, burrowing small mammals, um, were able to survive. When and maybe
2: they, cockroaches too, huh? I, cockroaches,
3: of course, how- all kinds of things <laughs> did survive. Some small bird-like lizards survive, and they became birds, and we and mammals gradually became a wide range of species because there was a whole environment that reformed, that started to grow again. Uh, there were plants, of course, which they needed to eat that came back, and here we are.
2: I, I'm fascinated I'm fascinated by the whole thing
0: and the enormous stretches of time for all of this to be huge achieved.
3: huge millions billions of years
0: and on one planet one lonely little planet out here <laughs> right. an elbow of the Milky Way Galaxy yeah man I'll bet the dinosaurs wish they had somebody to yell incoming when that asteroid was <laughs> but they had no defense You know, and what could they
3: do? I mean, (laughs)
0: yeah. And, and, you know, with all of our technology and all of our science, ultimately, is it a question of what can we do? I mean, I thought they'd finish counting all the asteroids. Okay, check, 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 check. And then, oh, we find out there's a new one. This will be coming by within the next hundred years or whatever it is. It's like the element of risk is ever present.
3: Of course, we don't need an asteroid to destroy the planet. We're doing a great job ourselves. (laughs) how
2: i asked you this uh, right before we started the show i'm gonna ask you again on air you grew up on a farm in northern wisconsin so Mm -hmm. on lake superior so how did you how did you get from northern wisconsin to santa fe new mexico what was that trajectory
3: everybody has a journey and um when i was old enough of course i went to college and uh, a good part of that was in madison wisconsin and uh that was the beginning of the environmental movement and for me that was like oh my gosh how exciting and it was exciting the early days of the environmental movement when we started the epa and things like that and you really felt that things were happening we were getting to address pollution i mean those were the days when the Cuyahoga river in ohio was literally burning. Um, we made great progress, and I was happy to be part of the early environmental movement. Uh, eventually, I moved to the Boston area, and uh, and then even from there, after five or six years, I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I've pretty much lived ever since then.
2: Were you influenced by other people when you were growing up? Things like, um, did you read *Silent Spring*? Or did- absolutely. I
3: mean, those those there were certain books like that um, that were Bibles in a way, uh, right. and actually eye-opening. Um, *Population Bomb* by Paul Ehrlich. I mean, those were all kind of classics in the early environmental movement. You bet. <laughs> I was also reading, starting to read more spiritual things too at that time, and saying, oh. See, I wonder if there's a way to bring these worlds together.
2: You know, Judith, we have talked about that with uh, with a lot of other people uh, over the years about when they had their own spiritual thoughts, their own thoughts mm-hmm. about, you know, what is life, and what is mm-hmm. reality, and, and what is my place in it, and people who have had uh rich spiritual lives often started when they were young and in the mm-hmm. beginning of your book you you talk about how being on the farm you just loved going into the woods you were always a naturalist
3: i mean it, it's like you I, were I, born I in the right so. place right i think i started out as a tree hugger back then and uh the trees it was a solitary existence there weren't any kids in my neighborhood so i would just go wander off in the woods and and you know hang out with the trees and you know pick berries and listen to the frogs and just have an interactive and rich experience that i didn't understand then was a holistic experience because i was i was i didn't know there was anything else uh any other way to experience that until later when I became dissociated in some ways, like most of us do when we're enculturated. Um, And so there were things I didn't talk about. I didn't talk much about those experiences. They were private experiences I had as a child.
2: Well, you know, that's beautifully said because in our culture, you need to go to school, you need to get a job, you need to make money. You need to feed yourself you need to have a place to live you need to clothe yourself and you know Mm -hmm. if you're if you're lucky you meet a mate and have children and i mean that's the the cycle Mm -hmm. and and so um, it might be that there are many 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 children who are born to be artists and musicians and environmentalists but life gets in the way and says, you need to make a living, my dear. Mm -hmm. And and so what was interesting in your case is that being a a lawyer is so left brain, so analytical. And, and, and it seems like in the reconciling of your rational side with your spiritual side, you kind of have come up with the best of both worlds and are able to pursue your environmental um, advocacy using a a a very good mind that got developed as a lawyer. Does that make sense to you?
3: It does. Basically, I started my first career was as an environmentalist. And then later I went to law school. And it really was and a, and a very fascinating process, because I didn't really understand how the world worked. But I sure did after that first year of law, sc- of law school. And so I had a long legal career. And then when I retired, I went back into doing environmental work. Uh And I realized when I was ready to retire that I had developed a whole set of skills that I didn't have before I became a lawyer. And a loss and um, went to law school and I could take those skills and utilize them in a different way than I might have earlier on I I knew how to take complex information and put it to a reader in a in a concise but understandable way so that was a a wonderful uh skill enhancement for me even though many times during my legal career i felt divided between my spiritual side and my professional side Mm.
0: it is time for our one and only break of the hour here at the bottom of the hour the book is why can't we be more like trees the ancient masters of cooperation kindness and healing Judith Pollich is our guest of this hour. Delighted to have her with us. Delighted that you're listening. Give us a couple of minutes and we will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.
1: Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend
0: Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell.
2: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Scott Stabile, who soothes our souls with bite-sized snippets of ideas from his book, Enough As You Are. This is Medicine for Your Spirit. On
0: Saturday, Michael Kozlowski entertains us with American ghost stories, true tales from all 50 states. Take a fright-filled tour across the U.S. with us as Michael surveys some very haunted places. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com.
2: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Judith Polich. She is the author of Why Can't We Be More Like Trees, the Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing. This is a brand new book, Judith. What is the release date on this book? It
3: just came out the 7th of November
2: brand new brand 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 spanking new why can't we be more like trees you have a website and probably some social media and you write for a journal in uh, New Mexico please let our listeners know about all the ways that they can find out more about you
3: well my website uh, is cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com and that's No Spaces Between, cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. And that's also the name of a column that I write on climate change. Uh, If you go to my website, you'll be able to read copies of a number of my articles. Uh, Also, there's information there on my books and about me. Uh, So it's cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. No spaces. (laughs) We'll get you there. Um, I have written a, col- a climate change column for the Albuquerque Journal for the last four years, and I'm just in the process of moving into some other publications and newsletter formats and things like that to make it more widely distributed. Uh, so what else can I say? I love writing. I love sharing with people. Uh, my book, uh, is about new narratives that we are developing as as humans new ways of thinking about ourselves and our interaction with nature uh, that can help us address the climate change crisis and i think many of our old stories the idea that we are superior to nature that we're not part of nature uh, that nature's there for us to control and commoditize are old stories that are no longer serving us. But my research has indicated that from wide parts of the scientific community, as well as uh, our traditional religions, new stories are arising that are really exciting and are placing us back into the community of nature in a way that we simply can't deny. So I hope folks will get out and read my book and enjoy it
2: absolutely and it's funny you brought up the religions and when I was reading about that I I, I said to Gary, well here's something I never knew and I was completely fascinated by what you wrote regarding uh, what is happening the fact that there are four major religions, covering 6.5 billion people
3: mm-hmm. and
2: what each of them has to say currently about the environment and the climate. And I'd, I'd like you to just touch on each one of those things, because when I read that, that was just a, a jaw-dropping experience that, that religions are actually getting behind this.
3: They are. And um within the Catholic Church, uh, Pope Francis has been a real advocate for taking action on climate change. And if we look back to the teachings of St. Francis, we can understand wh- how that evolves. And it kind of goes back to interpretations of the biblical story of creation. Increasingly now, it's recognized that it's not power over, that it's not we're superior to, but we're a part of nature, and that it's our job to protect and to be the caretaker of this wonderful garden of life that we've been given. Uh, within Islam, there's a whole green movement among uh, green green Muslims, uh, going back to the teachers of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, which inspire caring for the earth and uh, protecting its resources for the benefit of all. In um, Buddhism, many, many writers from Joanna Macy to um, Thich Nhat Hanh have expressed the need to care for the earth and to be in alignment with the earth and to deal with our own... um, our own consumption levels and take responsibility rather than just meditate. And um I guess the other would be Hindus. Hinduism, which I personally feel an affinity for, which many traditional Hindus see the sacredness of all life, the interconnection of all life and the oneness of all life. So these seeds have always been there. And that doesn't mean the policy leaders of those countries are following through, but there is... A deeper understanding uh, that goes back to the idea that we're all embedded in one larger life and that we all we have a role to play to care for all of life. And I think it is implicit in our major religions, as well as many of the other religions that people follow that are more indigenous and uh, earth based, the folk, the folk uh, religions of the world. So it's there. I mean, and maybe it's been misinterpreted in the past, but increasingly people are getting it.
2: Well, and that's that's what I noticed in in reading your book, is that um, is is that it's a matter of interpretation, right? And, and and so if you if you go back to the early writings of all of the major religions and look at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. As you just said, it isn't about conquering; it's about taking care of. Right. And and it seems to me that this will also translate to animals and plants. In in your book, it was it, one of the humorous things that I, I I read in your book was that you were saying that people are much more cognizant about how they treat. Animals. I mean, we have you know people throwing paint on women with fur coats. Don't don't be killing animals just for their fur. Right. You have PETA, you have you know the people saying we can't be abusing animals, and you said, wouldn't it be something if someday there was a PETA for plants? So we what? stopped abusing
3: the plant world. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, and that of course brings up lots of issues since um, Of course, we eat animals, but we also eat plants, and we don't think of them as sentient for the most part, though increasingly there's evidence that they may be. And what that may mean is that we just have to treat them with respect, with kindness, with appreciation, the way many indigenous cultures have forever, and... um you know susan simone who writes about who has written and done the scientific research on trees suggests, hey you know it isn't so much that we can't cut trees and utilize them we just have to do it with respect leave the mother trees you know leave yeah. a intact forest. let them have their the fullness of their life harvest what we need to so it's a matter of how we approach these things really i mean obviously the same thing with animals in this movement to have animals that we do consume treated with a different respect and kindness than uh happens in happens typically
2: uh one of the programs that uh, Gary and I watch and I, I'm a huge fan of is a program called life below zero and in recent uh years they have uh, featured an, uh, an indigenous Native American man along with his two children, and he's teaching his children the indigenous ways. And he, he's a hunter. They, they put mm-hmm. him on the program because he, he is a hunter, and they show how it is that he hunts animals, how he guts them, skins them, feeds people the meat, and all of that and he's constantly talking about the respect of the animal. And, and if you kill the animal, the first thing you do is thank the animal for giving its life so that you can live. And 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 that you don't kill indiscriminately. This is mm-hmm. not for the joy of killing animals. You, you kill what you need and no more than what you need. And you share with your community there is a, a way of looking at life and a way of of living life which doesn't mean that you would never eat a plant or never eat an animal but as you said i think the most important part is having us respect each other and and one of and i don't know if, if you agree or if i got this like just from my own thinking but it seems like when you're looking at the plant world, the animal world, and the human world on planet Earth, to me, it looks like a three-legged stool. Mm. And, and and so I, I say, are we not all equal? Are, are, are the plants not important? Are the animals not important? Is it only the humans that are important? I mean, I want to think about this differently so right. that I, I act differently.
3: Well, that's an interesting analogy. A one-legged stool does not stand, right? right. <laughs> so it can't just be all about the humans. Um, And we're, I think, at a time when we can begin at least to ask some questions and reevaluate our interactions with the kingdoms of life that we share this planet with. Uh And uh, while we may be the dominant species, we're not necessarily the smartest in many ways. Uh, We're not necessarily um the most thoughtful uh and but one thing we i think are beginning to understand is we are part of a larger interactive whole and the more we can develop the ability to think more holistically about the world we're living in and our responsibilities within the wholeness of all life uh the more that path is going to become clear to us and how we can interact uh in a more respectful way with all of nature.
2: Gary and I have talked to dozens of uh, people who who are either mediums or psychics or can see into other dimensions. And one of the really consistent uh, topics is that we are all connected. It is really a network. It's really a matrix that we're connected with every other person. When somebody is on the other side of the world, we can feel what is going on with them, that there is that connection. And reading your book, I said to myself, if we are connected with every other person on this planet, are we not connected with everything else on the planet? anything with intelligence, any animal, any plant, you know, where does that fit into the matrix? And it seems to me there is a a place for that as well.
3: I think both religion and science are pointing in that direction uh, as we have deeper understandings of what consciousness is and um, different ways of looking at consciousness. And I'm not psychic, but I can... I hope I aspire to perceive holistically. Um, I have for a long time because my rational mind, reductionism, all those skills that we have and that uh, we humans have developed that have made the world work for us in the way that it has are important. But within a larger context is the wholeness of all things. So we can't be one or the other. We really have to be both.
0: I'm curious to know, Judith, when you were first getting into ecology, environment, I remember Earth Day 1970.
3: There yes, been- me too. <laughs> <laughs> me
0: too. <laughs> Who were your heroes? there? Well,
3: I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and Gaylord Nelson was our senator and very responsible for some of the environmental mm-hmm. acts at that time. I remember that. Myself and a bunch of our friends who were kind of hippies in those days did a big dance around Gaylord Nelson who came to our earth day celebration. <laughs> he was your
0: maypole. <laughs> he was
3: our maypole, right. <laughs> How about someone
0: like Rachel Carson? There's oh, somebody who has got it. Of yeah. course.
3: I mean, and you know, one of the first scientists to really speak out. Um, one of my heroes is Al Gore. I I mean, I think he's done so much. Uh to bring climate change into our consciousness. And he's continued to work, you know, 24 hours a day on climate change directives. And, uh, he's an extraordinary human being. So there are many examples. Um, many people I admire who are relentless and who seem to have the resilience to keep going in the midst of difficult times. Um, but. I guess I've been lucky. I've been shaped by the thought of a lot of people.
2: One of the things that I heard recently was about some um, federal lands being set aside for a national park. And in my mind, I was thinking that national parks were all done by Teddy Roosevelt, you know, 100 years ago. and And then that was it. And that's not true at all. There are additional lands being set aside for national parks, national forests that hopefully will.
3: Actually, the uh, current government under Joe Biden is quite active in terms of setting aside lands and turning, including Bears Ears, which is about a million or so acres over in Utah. When Trump was president, he cut them out, he cut it down to just a few hundred thousand acres, but Biden uh, extended it back up. So there are Presidential authorities as well as other governmental authorities. And I think there's an increasing recognition worldwide that to get out of this crisis, we need to set aside 30% of our lands and 30% wow. of the ocean waters. And that is a huge international movement to help us meet that goal that all countries are participating and maybe not fast enough. But I think it's that's, that's what the ter- determination is that we need to sustain our lives and other lives on the planet
2: well I love that idea of 30 percent of the land being left for the plants and animals when and I've told this story before many times when Gary and I went into Yellowstone National Park at the north entrance at the north entrance they said you're a guest here Mm -hmm. this is the animals home and you're a guest don't molest the animals you know and and so you go in with a different mindset to the national parks And obviously, I mean, we saw we saw bears, we saw wolves, we saw sheep, we saw all kinds of wild animals. And the
0: bison. Oh, the bison. Bison,
2: Oh, my gosh, the bison.
0: (laughs) And when you get up close in your car, you're looking through your windshield. I go, why would anybody possibly get out of their car and play Matador? That's just insane.
3: It is insane. And Yellowstone is just a spectacular place. And, um, yeah, I mean, and it, but one problem, of course, is that we're kind of loving our parks to death. Uh, they're overused in many, in many areas, but there's, there are lots of reasons why. I mean, we need to go, I think as humans, we need to spend as much time in nature as we can. Nature is very healing. As I talk about in my book, the various different levels of how nature heals us. And, uh, we live in such, in such complex, stressed out existence that sometimes just a walk in the woods going to and going to some place special like yellowstone just brings us back to our center probably quicker than any other way i can think of of getting there
2: and that's why i was glad to see that we are still creating national parks we are still create <laughs> setting aside those lands for people to enjoy in their natural state and, you know, that's that's really good to know that that, that is occurring now. We, we need to go in that direction. And 30 and percent, that's that's big number. That's a good number to aim for.
3: It's a good number to aim for. And it has to be not just wasteland. It has to be land that's vital to lots of species. Yeah. Mm.
0: This idea of the national parks. I just love the whole concept. It's just this wonderful natural umbrella over our continent. How do you see funding? I mean, we're looking at another possible shutdown. Mm. You know, and we go through this every now and again, whether we want to or not. And I certainly hope not. But in terms of the national parks, there's such jewels. And I just wonder what kind of over over arching philosophy is going to be responsible for the next generation of people who are the next generation of stewards, hopefully people who see dominion, to go back to a biblical concept, dominion as stewardship rather than dominion as domination.
3: Well, I think most of the people who work within recreation generally, whether it's for service, national parks, uh, other set-aside areas, and there are many of them, are coming from an earth ethic. Uh, They're in those jobs because they love the natural environment. And I think many of the administrators, many of the policy leaders are also coming from an earth ethic. I mean, our politics is complicated and divisive right now. It doesn't always have to be that way. There should be some areas that we should be able to come together on. Hopefully we will more and more. Uh, in terms of preservation and caring for our part of the world as a whole. Uh, Certainly, avenues have been made forward. I mean, we're making some progress on climate change within this country. We hope we have the political will to continue that.
2: Absolutely.
0: And then the seas. There there are a few, of course, you can take your pick, I, I regret to say, but when I see oceans and bays that are absolutely littered with plastic as though it were a species unto itself, I start to get angry. And then I stop myself and I think there are people doing something about this who want to clean all of this up. If you look at, you know, poke your nose under the water in certain places on this, this earth, you get into the seas, the inlets, the ocean, and you see all of the plastic. And I mean, it's killing fish. It's doing all this harm. It just looks like a portrait of unconsciousness, not meanness, more like sloth and indifference that has to be addressed. And then I see people just coming up with innovative ways to clean all of that out, to scour the seas of these things that don't belong there. And I start to take heart again.
3: I think we can't lose heart. And part of the purpose of my column, Cutting Your Carbon Footprint, is to talk about things that individuals can do and change in their lives that can add to our cutting down our carbon footprint, whether it's how we handle plastic in our homes uh, or the cars we drive Um putting in a heat pump in our house, whatever those things are that individuals can do, as well as governments and larger entities. So it comes down to not just, we got to do more than be angry. We got to take action. And we have to encourage our politicians to take action. It can come from the ground up and we can bring major change. The plastic's going to be with us for a while. It takes forever to break down. But we don't have to continue to use plastics the way we do. We have a choice. Climate change is about choice.
2: Absolutely.
0: And it takes it takes all of us. Never mind that people will say, oh, you're a collectivist. And I wouldn't be surprised, Judith, if you've heard that once in a while. Oh, you're thinking like a collectivist.
3: Well, by golly, aren't we all part of one thing here? Aren't we all part of a larger ecosystem?
0: Well said. I want to make sure <laughs> we get this book into as many hands as possible. Why can't we be more like trees? The ancient masters are these trees of cooperation, kindness, and healing. Judith Polich, so delightful to talk to you. I I admire you. I think you're part of spearheading a movement whose time has been here and is becoming prominent once again. Good on you and good for the rest of us. Good for the earth.
3: Thank you both for having me. I've enjoyed talking with you very much and best luck in your endeavors thank you
2: and i want to help get your website out there one more time we got the book let's also get the website out.
3: cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com no spaces cutting (laughs) your carbon footprint all as if it's one word cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com thank you
2: okay well thank you judith happy uh thanksgiving to you that's coming up in a couple of weeks and Wonderful uh, thank holidays. You for being with us. Enjoy right. the holidays. Well. Okay. All right.
1: And thank you, veterans. Here's what's coming up next week on Manson Mitchell.
2: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Scott Stabile, who soothes our souls with bite-sized snippets of ideas from his book, Enough As You Are. This is Medicine for Your Spirit.
0: On Saturday, Michael Kozlowski entertains us with American ghost stories, true tales from all 50 states. Take a fright-filled tour across the U.S. with us as Michael surveys some very haunted places. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150.